Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, Sunday morning, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. First up, of course, we have to welcome back Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there, on what I think is going to be a gorgeous day. So you're allowed to sit in bed and listen to us whilst uh, we're on, but you've got to get up and out in the garden soon. Or even better, go out and visit some of your local nurseries. There's one nurseryman sitting in here that wouldn't mind seeing you this afternoon. And so, everything's going to be ready to just pop out of the ground and explode. Yeah. In fact, well, some of it started already. It has. I mean, well, obviously the bulbs are well underway, but there's a lot of, lot of deciduous trees that their buds are starting to swell. So uh, I noticed this morning there's a few magnolias out and about around the city and oh, so forth. And, I've seen a couple of magnolias. Magnificent ones. It's going to be a good year for them. Yeah, yeah, I think it will be as long as the possums leave them alone. Yes. Um, So, yes, so spring is springing and it is also probably almost the last week that you'll be able to buy bare-rooted trees safely. Mm. So if you don't get your bare-rooted trees in now, um, you'll – well – it won't stop you buying trees, but you'll have to buy pot-grown ones mm. from now on in because uh, they are starting to move. So I would hesitate to sell bare-rooted trees probably much after this weekend. Well, yes, mm. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> so, especially if this weather continues, although they are talking about it dropping back in temperature for the rest of the week with some showers and things. So, well, that's good. Yeah. We could well, do with I, a little bit more rain. Spring no rains are wonderful. Yep. I was planting some things in the garden the other day, and because we have a lot of big old gums and things in, around our garden, um, there's still dry ground under there. Mm. There you know, is. It really hasn't soaked in. Yep. Because um, we were, uh, well, we'd been down to help a certain uh, mother-in-law with moving some plants and some of them ended up coming back to our place. And, surprise, surprise. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think they're being sort of Minded, fostered for the time. Set. Yes, for the time being. And so I had to sort of quickly go around and dig holes everywhere for right. clivias and all sorts of stuff yeah, to okay. get them back into the ground. And I was surprised how dry in some parts my garden still is. Yes. So, yeah, so if you've got a tree cover um, and potentially garden beds that have been over the years well mulched, because mm. mulch will in fact exclude water getting in a That's bit. That's right. Um, and I've been doing that for years. I mean, people told me our second story one on the house because the first one was disappearing under the mulch. So being <laughs> an obsessive mulcher, um, uh, it does have its drawbacks as far as getting rain down into the ground. So, you know, if your ground's bare now and you've got mm. the rain in, well, let's start thinking about mulching. But if you've had mulch down, well, it may be actually counterproductive in a way. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So there you go. I kept waiting for the rain because I pruned the roses and I really wanted to put a bit of fertiliser around them. But, you know, you meant to do it on wet soil and then water it in. And, yeah. and I kept waiting for the rain and waiting for the rain. In the end, I got the watering can yeah, out. And, yeah, yeah. You know. You've got to do it yourself yeah. if, no, if Mother Nature doesn't help. That's right. But anyway, that's uh, one more job done. Yeah, yes, fair enough too. We have to say a very good morning to Greg Balderston. Good morning, morning Greg. Morning, Pam. You've been busy with all your markets? Uh, yeah, always busy with the markets. So, um, they've been a bit slow recently, though, so the, hopefully it'll pick up coming into spring. And, the, and as Stephen said, the bulbs are starting to uh, 
do their thing, which I've got quite hurry. a lot of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, all on this weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, it was so, a shame that we didn't have too many people out at the markets uh, yesterday at Lansfield. It, it was it was a nice market, but it, it wasn't. I was hoping it was such a beautiful day yesterday. Oh, and, it was uh, gorgeous. Uh, it, was, uh, it was surprising to see not so many people out uh, as as you would think after winter and then having a day like yesterday. Um, well, hopefully we're suddenly going to have a spring frenzy next weekend. Yeah, yeah. Where are you next weekend? Yes, where? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's the uh, uh, Glen Lyon, Gardens of Glen Lyon. Hang on, I've just got to get the, the information up. Uh, there's uh, five uh, gardens open at Glen Lyon uh, next weekend. And there's a, a little stall. I, I haven't got a lot of information on it, uh, unfortunately. Um, the thing that they sent me didn't open up on the email. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, there's uh, so there's five gardens open in Glen Lyon. I think they're five dollars each entry. Okay. Uh, there's also a special dinner on the Saturday night uh, on the 29th of August, and the guest speaker is Simon Rickard, and I think oh, it's right. forty five dollars per person. Um, I actually think I saw that advertised somewhere. It may have been, been in yesterday's age. Yeah. Ah. I, uh, the Simon Rickard talk. Okay. I've got a feeling it might. I, have I been think if you if you Google. Gardens of Glen Lyon, I think it'll come it'll Can come you actually explain to people where Glen Lyon is? Because a lot of people probably well, wouldn't Well, I think it's over near Trentham, isn't yeah. it? I'm <laughs> not so sure either. Yeah, yeah it's in I that know area. I've been there, but it's, it's, it's sort of over towards Trentham. Well, well that would uh, make sense, which is why Simon's speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, a, it's lovely countryside over there. Oh, it's all beautiful. that beautiful rolling hills and potato farms. Yeah, and, and there's wineries gorgeous. over there too. I think there's some uh, refreshments available at the uh, at one of the wineries over there and, uh, and also the... the the general store apparently puts on some... some I tell you what, $45 a head for a dinner and yeah. a guest speaker is mm. pretty good yeah. value. Yeah, I think it's great yeah. I think that's so, wonderful. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in yesterday's age, so people should be able to look the talk up at least in okay. that. Yep. Uh, and it'll probably have details for booking, I should imagine, there Greg, as do well. you happen to have a phone contact number at uh, all I on that? I don't think there was one on there, yeah. Um, because that would be a way people could find yeah. out a bit more. Yeah. Well, let's have a... As I say, the, the little fly that I got... Um, uh, the only thing that it has is a is a uh, a website, glenline.vic.au. Uh, okay. uh, That's right. easy. Yeah, so people could at least go in there and get some info. Hopefully, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. It's a lovely spot out there, so it'd be a really nice oh, day out. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, and I mean, you're not far from Trentham, so you could whip into Trentham to the uh, yeah. to the Redbeard Bakery, or you know, to the Cosmopolitan, or, or post office farm or, nursery, or you could go to Ashbourne to the post office farm nursery on Sunday. In fact, yeah, Greg mentions that quite serendipitously. <laughs> um, uh, Peter Lee's got his um, Hellebore nursery open on Sundays now, and it's from um, well, it was from June the seventh, but it goes through to the twenty seventh of September. So that's Sundays only, ten till four. And my God, some of those hellebores—they are oh. just amazing. Yes. You know, some of the the different colours and the new doubles and picketed ones and anemone scented ones and. The range, if you'd said to me 30 years ago they'd be creating the sort of hellebores they've got today, I would have said you're nuts because mm. I just didn't believe there was the genetics in the genus to create what they have. Uh, I mean, they got good Where do stro- they get apricot from? Yeah, from yeah. from what you used to see. You know, I grew up with in, in Mount Macedon. You, yeah, think, you had where, those Where would muddy, they get apricot from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you sort of muddy pinky green yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea where apricot came yeah. from. I was shocked enough with yellow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now you can get double yellows and double blacks. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's just truly remarkable so even if you're just vaguely interested in hellebores uh, a trip to post office farm nursery in ashbourne is definitely 
Oh, oh, yeah. But make absolutely. sure you bring your MasterCard with you or whatever because <laughs> you won't be able to help yourself. I no, mean, no, exactly. You'll have to buy at least one. Yes. Um, and I know when I get stock from Peter because I sell a few of his hellebores at my nursery, I can't see any point in trying to grow my own when he grows such good ones. Um, I always struggle not to take several home once they arrive at my nursery. You know, I look through them and I go, Ooh, that looks quite nice. Ooh, can I, I live think, without I that I think one? actually if you commit to buying one, then you can't stop yeah. at one. No. Once once you, you've decided you're taking one home, then it's got to be a few. Well, of course it is because you see the other one that would go really well with the one you're Exactly. <laughs> and you can't have one little one stuck in a spot no, all on no, its own. No, you've no. got to have Yeah, hellebores are best drift in drifts. Of, yes, yeah, exactly. They are definitely best in drifts. So, yeah, so Post Office Farm Nursery is open every Sunday now right through until basically the last Sunday in September. And that, I guess we can go on to announcements, can't we? In a, in we certainly yeah. can. Because uh, that also raises another issue, and that is that, of course, the Mount Macedon Plant Lovers Fair, which used to be called the uh, – or Garden Lovers Fair that used to be called the Plant Lovers Market. Yes. I'll get used to this eventually. Um, <laughs> is on at Bolabeck again uh, on September the 19th and 20th. So although it's a little way ahead, it's a good idea It's to, not that far ahead, Stephen. It's not, and, and it's a good idea to sort of pop it in your diary, make sure that you're aware that it's on. Uh, I mean, it's one of those events you have to be at. Uh, I mean, apart from the fact that you're going to have a whole range of growers like Greg and others there flogging their plants, um, you've got all that acquired knowledge that's all going to be in one place. Absolutely. So you can chat to all the different stallholders about your garden needs and, and why you're not growing something well or whether you can grow something at all. Um, there'll also be people like Gil Teague with his books from Sydney, which is always a de- dreadful temptation <laughs> for yours truly. Uh, and there'll be garden tools and other garden equipment and things available as well. So uh, so that's the 19th and 20th. It opens at 10 a.m. in the morning. Uh, you won't be allowed into the car park area until 9.30 um, uh, on the Saturday and Sunday. So don't arrive and park out the front for too long, otherwise you'll block up traffic. Um, and um, there'll be food available. It, uh, there's going to be speakers this year, so there's going to be a speaker's marquee. That's and there good. Will be, there'll be it's talks a great place to have it too. Bollebeck's just... The, oh. the best, the best place to have it. It's such a nice setting, and, and the garden's gorgeous. beautiful. And yeah, and you, I think you're in, you're allowed to bring a picnic if you want to a picnic oh, yeah. in Bollebeck Garden. Yeah, there's I mean, no how good reason is that? why you can't bring a picnic if you wish to do so. Yes, um, I think I'm on the speaker's roster for some time on the Sunday. Okay. I think it's about the middle of the day on Sunday, so I've got to sort of rush off from my place, go down there, do my talk, and then rush back again. Um, so yeah, so there should be lots and lots of things going mm. on down at Bollebeck this year. So um, great fun. So remember, nineteenth and twenty. Um, and I guess the other well, the other group I want to talk about that I have a particular passion for is Plant Trust, uh, which people would still possibly know, know as Garden Plants Conservation Association of Australia. And we've got actually two things coming up that I think you need to keep in your in your mind. Um, one is next weekend, so you need to get your act together if you're going to get involved because you need to RSVP by tomorrow. Oh. So you don't have a lot of time with this one. And this is a fantastic uh, tour of two Danny Nong Gardens, uh, Otto Faust's garden, uh, uh, Doshong La, uh, which is just a miniature bulb and alpine collectors. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, it's just... A, it's too much almost. <laughs> yeah, it is too much. You're right, Greg. You, you walk around Otto's garden and what Otto hasn't got isn't worth having. <laughs> you know, his collection is amazing. He's got, you know, uh, virtually every Galanthus Noda man. He holds the National Collection of Crocus. He's even had one named after him, so there is now Crocus Fauceri. Um, so they double go- planted too, so yeah. I, the, how he works out how to think how where uh, everything is and, and the layers that they're 
down and oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's truly a remarkable garden. It's not a big garden. It's no. quite small and it's on a very steep slope. It is. Uh, and this is well, Otto says that this is possibly the last time he'll open the garden for. Bruce. Oh really? Yeah. So if you want to see Otto Faust's garden, oh gosh, and that's it is, a must. It is quite limited the number we can take as well. Uh, we'll also be visiting Tim Orphan's Kenlock Manor, which is basically well, it is sort of next door, but. You can go from the side of Otto's to the back of Kenlock. You know, yeah, whereas pathway. if you're doing it by the road, it seems to be miles <laughs> yeah. away. Um, and Kenlock is a wonderful old hills, hills garden. Uh, and the current owner, Tim Orphan, has done enormous work on the house and garden. And there are drifts of trilliums and potophyllums and... You name it, he's got them there. He's just a mad keen plant collector. Uh, and he does everything in huge quantities. You know, he wouldn't plant a crocus bowl. No. He'd plant a thousand crocus bowls. <laughs> and you know? has done. And has done, yeah. So uh, it's one of those sort of places that if you want to see things being done on a grand scale, I mean, it's still a, a serious work in progress. Tim's got lots of things he wants to do with the property. And if he manages to live long enough, uh, and he's a young man, so he could, uh, it's going to be one of the showcases of the Dandenongs when oh, he's finished yes. with it. I mean, the, the layout of what's there already is a great sort of, template to work with and he will just take it to the next level so so they're the two gardens are going to be available if you want to come along with uh with the group you need to ring obviously in book because uh, we've got to organize lunches and morning teas and things uh it's 40 dollars for members of plant trust 50 dollars for non-members you need to ring um the office which is nine six five zero five six three nine that's nine six five zero Five six three nine, and leave a message with your contact details because you're not given the address until you've booked. Fair enough. So once you've booked, you'll be given the directions of how to get to the first garden where we'll meet and then move on from there. Uh, or you can go into the um, – you can use your little computer and go into plant trust, one word, at inet.net.au. And so you could book through that way as well. And, of course, it's a fundraiser for Plant Trust. And I'll mention, too, we haven't got a brochure for it, but we've got our AGM coming up on the 17th of September, which will be at Domain House um, in Dallas Brooks Drive, so just near the herbarium there. And that's something people should get involved in. One, we'd like to see more people come along and get involved in Plant Trust anyway. Um, But we have a comparatively short AGM, so it's not terribly painful. And then we go on to our world-famous plant auction yes. where members who've got interesting plants bring them along, donate them to the organisation. We then, um, uh, well, I then auction them off in the evening and it's a lot of fun and it's a great way to raise funds for Plant Trust and it's also a great way of getting some fairly precious and unusual plants for your own garden. So we'd like to see more people at that. So mm. um, it starts, I think we like people to start arriving around about 6.30 to 7. Um, and there'll be wine and cheese and nibbly things as well. Uh, we'll get through the AGM as quickly as possible. And then we get on to the big plant auction, which will be great fun. So please come along. It's uh, Plant Trust is a really worthwhile organisation to get involved with. Absolutely. So, uh, And I always look forward to the AGM and plant auction, although I spend about the next week almost uh, voiceless. Uh, <laughs> it's quite a night. So there you go. So there's the announcements I've got. I can't think of any others at the moment. Wonderful. Well, I better get to some of the ones that I've got. Um, firstly, I have been talking about the Heritage Tree Tour that's being run by Friends of Burnley Gardens. Now, um, I originally did say that bookings are closed on the 20th of August, but they've still got a few places left. So if anyone wants to jump in, this is taking place next Saturday, the 29th of August. 
Now, um, it's a full-day bus tour led by former National Trust Project Officer John Fordham. And um, this time they're going to some have a look at a number of wonderful trees located in southeast Melbourne and in West Gippsland. Now, many of the trees are listed on the National Trust's Significant Tree Register and uh, they're going to be seeing oh, all sorts of things. The biggest chestnut tree in Victoria, would you believe? Um, an out-of-the-way arboretum, uh, an unusual planting of Bhutan cypress. Lots and lots of wonderful trees to look at. Um, as I said, it is a full day. Um, you actually uh, you board the bus at Burnley, then you proceed to Berwick, uh, then they go on to Druin, uh, journey back through the Latrobe State Forest, um, and on the way home, a few others, and then return to Burnley. So a really packed day. Now, um, the cost is $80 for members of Friends of uh, Burnley Gardens, $105 for non-members. Now, the bus will leave from Burnley at 8 a.m., so you have to be up bright and early and parked down at Burnley in the boulevard, ready to board the bus at 8 a.m. Then the return will be approximately 6 p.m. at night. Now, bookings, of course, are essential. You do need to book and you need to pay with that booking. Uh, you can pay by EFT, which, uh, and it's probably easiest if you go to the Friends of Burnley uh, Gardens website to have a look at the details for account numbers and things, or you can pay by cheque and mail that to Friends of Burnley Gardens, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. Um, but if you'd like more information, if you want to um, say that, yes, you will be coming along, um, uh, you could phone John Fordham himself and his number is 0407 That's 0407 And that's all happening next Saturday. Now, also coming up, Coming up, uh, we have an orchid uh, show and sale, uh, which is which is coming up next weekend again at KCC Park down in Sky. That's where they usually hold all their big dog shows. Um, but uh, that's all happening, as I say, next weekend, starting on the Friday, actually. So 28th, 29th and 30th of August. Uh, now, the actual venue is the Box Hall Pavilion, KCC Park. It's at 655 Western Port Highway in Skye. Now, opening times on the Friday is 9 till 5, Saturday 9 till 5, Sunday 9 till 4. Uh, entry, adults $10, concession $8, children under 15 are free. And uh, on that show... There's going to be, of course, lots and lots of orchids on display. There's going to be a wide variety um, of orchids to buy, from seedlings to plants in flower. There'll be bulbs, bromeliads. There's a photographic competition and art show. Books, pots, accessories, free parking, potting demonstrations, experts on hand and a kiosk of food. So that's all happening next weekend starting on the Friday. Now, a couple of others I do need to get through. Firstly, um, we have uh, the next meeting of the Australian Plant Society, Keelor Plains Group. They're going to be meeting, meeting uh, on Friday, September the 4th at 7.50. 
Trevor Blake is going to be presenting uh, some stunningly beautiful but rarely grown plants from Australia's desert regions entitled Salt Bushes and Other Dryland Beauties. Now, the venue is the Uniting Church, corner of Roberts Road and Glenis Avenue in Airport West. Um, you can contact uh, the secretary if you'd like to find out more details. That's Anne and her number is 9336-3228. That's 9336-3228. Now, just a couple of others that I need to get to because um, these are fairly major ones that are coming up. Uh, firstly, uh, Saturday, 5th of September, is the annual Open Day at Burnley. Now, this is being run in conjunction with the Friends of Burnley Gardens and, of course, the University of Melbourne. Now, uh, they're going to have um, uh, people there from the university uh, with an expo of all the courses showcasing undergraduate, graduate and short courses. Um, now, there's also going to be uh, David Glenn is going to be the guest speaker. Uh, now, he'll, David is talking, let me just see on the times. He'll be talking at 11.30. And, of course, uh, David is the founder of uh, Lamley Nursery there. Uh, there's also going to be a free guided tour of the gardens led by Andrew Smith who's the garden coordinator, that will happen at 10.30. And as well as that, there's going to be um, a workshop run by uh, Brian Shields. Now, this is an introduction to pruning. Now, Brian is a graduate of Burnley and a former horticultural practice and propagations lecturer at Burnley campus. Um, And uh, he's going to be running this workshop 10 a.m. through to 1 p.m., now, the cost is 35 for members of Friends of Burnley or for 55 for non-members. The workshop is limited to 20 participants, BYO secateurs, clothes, shoes and gloves. As I mentioned, parking is available there in the boulevard. Bookings are essential for that workshop with Brian. Uh, you need to phone 9035 6861, that's 9035 6861, or you can email a.smith at And again, uh, payment details, you can uh, find that out on their website. It's uh, paid by EFT or also by cheque payable to Friends of Burnley Gardens. So that's all happening 5th of September. Um, there are, uh, oh, and of course the Burnley uh, Green Roof will be open to the public to have a look at um, on the day, which is also absolutely fascinating. Uh, now, there's just one more I will mention at the moment, and I might come back to a few, but uh, this is the next all-day workshop being run uh, down at uh, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens by the friends of uh, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. And this workshop is entitled Callistamins and the Closely Allied Melaleucas. Now, it's going to be a very interesting day. Uh, there'll be lots of discussion, 
lots of uh, guest speakers because um, there's a bit of controversy uh, as to Callistamins uh, oh, and Melaleucas. Oh, so, yes. um, well, so apparently one of the pundits is trying to dump Callistamin into Melaleuca. That's right. And yeah, a lot so, of the botanists are... Yes. Yes. Well, I know Roger's not overly impressed because I did talk to him about it the other day. Yes. Uh, and he seems to think that Callistamin is a perfectly sound genus. There might be one or two Callistamins that need to come out, but he seems to think that Callistamin should stay. So it'll be interesting to see who wins that one. It'll it'll come down to DNA. I'm sure it'll come down yes. to DNA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will too. That's yeah. that's sort of the end of the discussion really, isn't well, it? Well, it is. DNA? Once they get to that level <laughs> and they can prove that the DNA says such and such, I guess you don't have much you can argue about after that. No, exactly. Now, um, this is taking place our, on Sunday the 13th of September, as I mentioned, down at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne. Uh, starting at 9.30, as I said, it is an all-day workshop. Um, the cost is $60 for members uh, of the Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens Cranbourne, $75 for non-members and $30 for students. I do think it's great that, that groups cater for students mm. because they can't afford to be paying out $75 and it's it's a great way for them to Especially really... Especially if they've um, got their hex fees they've got to catch deal up with in due course. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's wonderful that students are catered for in this way. So uh, you do, of course, uh, need to book and you can get a booking form by phoning 8774-2483. That's 8774 2483 or you can email our good friend Roger and the email address is rg elliot with two l's at optusnet.com.au so that's rg elliot at optusnet.com.au as i say if i have uh, a little more time during the program we will get back to uh, a few of the others We've uh, just uh, had a very surprised guest turn up who I thought I was going to be talking to on the phone this morning. But goodness knows he's turned up in person. Good morning, Will Ashburner. Good morning, Pam. I just couldn't, get, couldn't stay in bed this morning. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, I wish I had that problem. <laughs> I could easily have stayed in bed this morning. Oh, it's too, too nice a morning to stay yeah. in bed, Steve. Well, yes, well, you say that, but if you sleep through it, you don't know. <laughs> Guess not. Guess not. Now, I think, Will, most of our listeners will realise because they've seen for themselves that it is definitely daffodil time at the moment. It is, yes. They're, they're all over the place this year. Um, there seems to be um, a, a very early season, I think. There was um, flowers. We had lots of flowers at the end of July, which yeah. is fling, things that wouldn't normally flower till mid-August, which is a bit of a pain because I still want to go, go off cross-country skiing and things like that. <laughs> and then the daffodils get in the road. How did they? They did, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you the photos later, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But, Will, um, specifically I wanted you to uh, tell our listeners because you've got your very famous Hancock's Daffodil Garden Festival starting next Friday. Oh, no, it's already, already started, actually. It's already, it's started, already started because yeah. they're out early. You've started. No, we we, tend, we, we wanted to start this time. but um, Okay. We normally try and – oh, yeah, you're right. We normally would start with Daffodil Day, don't we? Yes, yeah. that's right. They must have – they just didn't get – they got confused with the dates, Daffodil Day, and they didn't follow us, I think, this year. Okay. Mm. <laughs> well, fair enough. So it's all up and running. Yeah. Um, we've got – the farm's open and um, people can come and visit. The display garden's still a little bit thin, but there's lots of flowers on display, and I've brought a few in to show you. But you certainly – have and we'll we'll get to some of these because again you always bring in the most amazing variety of daffodils. It's just fantastic. Oh, you so, haven't seen anything yet. I know, I'm sure of it. <laughs> 
So they open, different species open progressively during the um, season? Yes. Um, there's, there's species and types, as you know, um, and the, the types have been bred from the species. So, yes, the, the species will show. I noticed there's a little um, cyclamineous daffodil at my feet here at the moment. Yes. And um, that's a great – and oh, look, a little um, – is it uh, Nanus or Minimus? Asturensis. Asturensis, oh, goodness me. That's, a, that's even the earliest daffodil that flowers. Little tiny weird little thing, um, and and a lot of the the big hybrid daffodils, the um, the um, tetraploid type da- daffodils have, have have had the species bred into them, and you get lovely things. And the cyclamines produces great little things. And there's there's one there called satellite, which is um, wow bred with a cyclamines parent. Yes, um, so gorgeous yeah. orange trumpet, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah, really vivid, brightened. absolutely vivid. Yes. So and yeah, there's always something coming on. Yes. Now, Will, as usual, you always have the most amazing variety of colours. Now, we've got, we've got one with, well, you'd have to call it a pink, a, an apricotty pink trumpet. Yes. Oh, we call it pink, but yeah. Yes. Really yeah daffodil pink. growers don't know what real pink is. <laughs> we were, careful, Steve, careful. We've got, we got some lovely true pinks now, too. But, yeah, that, that's the sort of the first pinks that came in the apricot shades. Because if you can think about it, daffodils were bred from a yellow and a white plant. Mm. So it's, it's quite extraordinary where it's just a, a testament to human selection that we can sort of guide them into various shapes and colours. It's a bit like dogs, I think. If you look at what dogs look like 100 years ago, they they look totally different now. And I think I heard somewhere along the line there's now a green daffodil. Uh, well, there's always been a green species called Viridiflorus, which okay. is yeah, um, which you need your microscope to see. Oh. Yeah, it's, quite, it's quite small, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, it's very subtle. It doesn't actually have a leaf. It, the flower actually, what, what you think is a leaf turns out to be the flower stem, so it doesn't actually okay. have a leaf. So it's quite extraordinary. Flowers yeah. in autumn. Smells incredible, thing. doesn't it? But Magic. yeah, but mm. you, yes, it's it's this weird shade of green that just disappears. You can't. Uh, you know, when mine flowers each year, it's always a surprise because I pick it up by the smell more than I do the the visual. Thing with Viridiflorus. Do you right. grow yours in the ground or in, in no? The at this stage, I've got that many bulbs, and I've kept mm-hmm. them in pots at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's certainly a collector's piece. Yeah, it's a lovely thing, and we we occasionally sell them. Um, uh, but that has been they've used that. Uh, there's a few breeders. A fellow called John Hunter in New Zealand, especially, has um, he he made a, a a gateway which is broken into the um, into the breeding green daffodils and some of his stuff now is quite extraordinary and the thing the offshoot of that is that he actually bred daffodils that flower in autumn yes well that would be the other possibility wouldn't it because viridiflorus is in fact an autumn flowering species exactly so you should be able to change flowering times as well as color he has and he has bred some full-size daffodils that flower we were visiting in april one year and they were flowering and i thought goodness now, me. Come, now i want your opinion on this is it appropriate to have proper daffodils in flower in autumn it seems somehow no i, I think not i think we should yeah, do a nuclear yeah. strike on his place and get rid of them all because, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I want to have a holiday <laughs> yeah well there is that side of it but there are some flowers that are sort of well daffodil yes. is a classical harbinger of spring yes, isn't it exactly. i mean you, you you think daffodils, you think spring. I'm not sure whether it's a great idea to have them all year round. Yeah, but we, we thought that about roses too, didn't we? Yeah, and now we haven't got the blue flower. one, thank God. <laughs> now we have cut flower roses all year round. We have cut flower lilies all year round. Yeah, I mean, well, that's true. There's this smorgasbord of flowers that suddenly there's no seasons in, even in flowers in, in, the, in the marketplace, mm. which is a bit sad. Huh? Yeah, look, yeah. I like things to be seasonal, just like I like my veggies to be Absolutely. a bit seasonal. So I have to say I'm not sure that I approve of 
trumpet daffodils being available and in flower in autumn. I mean, it gladdens your heart. You see them come out and you think, yes, spring's around the corner, you yeah, know. and if they flower in April, you're going to be you're waiting going to a be... long time. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, when the sun doesn't come, you're going to get quite depressed, I think. <laughs> yeah. But it is amazing. You're right, Will, what mm. can be done. Mm, mm, yes. Mm. We've got a double one here too, I noticed, Will. Oh, it's actually um, what's called a split corona, that one. Okay. It's, sort of, it's got layers of petals. It makes it look like it's It makes double, it yeah. look like a double, yeah. yes. But split corona means that the petals have been, uh, the corona's been split to the base, yeah. Yes. So it's a sort of, if you look close, you can see it's all sort of split up. Yes. Mm. And that the interesting thing about doubles is that they actually um, have come from the uh, stamens and... Um, and filaments of the uh, of the flower. They so have actually they have the, the petals haven't doubled up. The the stamens have, have actually become, become petaloid. Petaloid, yeah. yeah. Does yeah. that then mean that a lot of those doubles are less fertile? Absolutely. Less, yeah. If you look at them, very, breeders go hunting. They pull the flowers bits looking for for um, pollen. Yeah. And looking for stamens to to, to stick it on. So, yeah. yeah. I've done that myself, I must admit. Now, it's interesting, Some of the, another sort of thing about fashions and changes. I remember reading somewhere that when some of these weird split Corollas and, and doubles first started coming online mm. or, or were being bred, yep. that they were often discarded as just monstrosities and ugly things. They, yes. you know, they weren't a proper daffodil because they didn't have a proper trumpet and they didn't look like the shape of a daffodil. And so some of these varieties, if they'd shown up 100 years ago, probably would have ended up on the compost heap. Exactly, yeah. and it happens, still happens now. There's there's taste in daffodils, and people mm. will will refuse them. And I must say, I collect I, in my breeding program. I keep some of the odd things. I, I quite like spiky petals, so yeah. I've been keeping the ones with spiky petals. And maybe one day, I'll they'll get be the fashion. For it. Who knows? Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but there's also flat. I, it's, it's quite interesting. The split coronas have, have made it onto the sh- what's called the show bench, mm. where the the daffodil aficionados have approved it now. And now the standard for smoothness and what have you for them. Ah, uh, yes. Yet. In Australia, we had a, a fellow in Tasmania who started breeding what we call flat cup daffodils, mm. which I think are much more attractive. Where the the, the cup itself is is not ripped to the base; it's yeah, so completely it's just flattened out. Mm. It's just flattened out. And some of them can look quite extraordinary, where they completely cover the um, the petals and they look really quite neat. But they they don't like them. The the, the, the <laughs> <laughs> And it is, when you say they don't like them, it's exactly that. It's just a taste thing, isn't it? Mm, so, um, I mean, I have to say, I'm not really fond of the pink trumpet daffodils. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find the pink shades look somehow like flesh to me. There's there's this sort of animalistic really? thing. Yeah, I, I can't bring myself to enjoy the pink trumpet daffodils. Uh, I have no problems with green or white ones. I have no problems with orange trumpets and things, but the pink ones I'm not fond of. But that doesn't mean other people won't be. So mm. I wouldn't certainly try and be the, the, the taste police and say, well, you're not growing those ones because <laughs> I don't like them. Mm, well, well, often people will... will... Who've never seen the colour range when they visit our stand for the first time will say that about the, they always like the yellows. The yellows yeah. are their favourites. But mm. after a while, you know, you sort of slowly wean them off them and onto the higher price ones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, well, it does come down to that. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, Will, the, the beauty of you opening up the farm to the public is uh, the fact that people can actually come up, wander the fields, look at all oh. the different. Not quite wander Not quite the wander the fields? No, well, they can sort of look at the fields. Okay. The distance. Okay, fair of, enough. Due to quarantine reasons and, and yes. hygiene reasons, we don't. Although we may make exception in 2017. 
Okay. Mm. What changes in twenty seventeen? Well, it's our centenary year. All right. And we happen to have we're going to I'm going to plant the daffodils next to the the the, the stalks, the um the shed. So oh, we close. Great. Whereas at the moment they're sort of up the top of the hill to get there. It's a bit of a hike and okay, you know, a tractor drive up the top sort of thing. So we'll be having them. Nice and close to the shed, and, and people will we'll let the people walk through that. Yeah. Okay, mm. but you also it's safe have, then. Yes, fair enough. You also have a big display, don't no, we, you? That's right. We have a display <laughs> garden where we have them in rowed out in, in beds with yes. about two hundred varieties in beds. Wow! And depending on how how good we are at picking that week, we'll have a hundred or so flowers on display as well. Fantastic! Mm. It does give people the opportunity to select what bulbs they want to then put into their own garden because they can see how they're going to flower. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's being able to see them in a garden situation. You can actually get an idea of actually how high they grow, and and sometimes there's a lot of leaf on them, and others have sort of pointy leaves. Yeah. And yes. some, the leaves are just as important as the flowers in many ways. Mm. There's no reason why daffodils can't be grown for leaves. Really, if you think about it, everybody, they grow other things for leaves. Why can't daffodils be grown for leaves too? So, yeah, well, if they've got attractive foliage, why not? Indeed, mm. uh, actually, it does raise another interesting issue when you talk about sort of flower or stalk length because yes. you. The way I understand it is you can still have a miniature daffodil, but it can be on a very tall stem, uh, which is not what I would want for my rock garden. Mm -hmm. So the flower might be in scale, Mm. but the plant itself isn't Mm. uh, Mm. for what you want necessarily. So to be able to see how they grow, I mean, Greg's little Asturiensis here is definitely a rock garden daffodil because it's, it's, you know. It's grown too. When it first came out, it was. uh, Oh, yeah, it's elongated, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's only in the old measurements two or three inches tall. So it's obviously a perfectly legitimate rock garden plant but if that flower stem was sort of you know a foot tall mm. it would be a completely different plant it's funny so there, there's a debate in the in the um the show circles about what really is a miniature yeah. is it a miniature size flower or a miniature height yeah and i think i think the size is more important than the height of the flat because as you say they keep growing the stems mm. just keep growing they don't yeah. stop mm. yeah and you can have a giant daffodil and a stem that small i, I figured there could be a miniature then Sense, yeah, it, well, it does. It, it is a debatable point, but uh, for me, a miniature is something that's got a small flower and has a stem that's in sort of keeping scale wise. Mm, mm. So they're the ones I always look for if I'm going to add them to my collection because mm. I want them to be able to grow in my rock garden. And the trouble is, you don't want anything too small either. Well, I guess you can get small and then get minuscule. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, and then you wonder about the value of them. And, I mean, there's lots of other groups of bulbs that do the same thing. I mean, some bulbs have flowers that are so tiny that you've got to have them on mass if mm, they're going to make mm, any sort of impact mm. at all. True. Um, so, you know, that can... You've always got a, a nice macro lens on your camera to enjoy them too sometimes. You're right, Greg. You can go in with something and sort of say, well, that is pretty Because a lot of that detail you don't generally see when you're out in the garden but if you if you take to it with a decent camera or, or mm. try and get a good photo of it there's some stunning little things that sort of go missed in gardens I think yeah. a lot and you do find collectors person. particularly uh, will go for the subtle and the tiny and what have you whereas the general public will tend to walk they past want the it big showy yeah because they won't see it <laughs> yeah. uh, I know when I have some of my green and brown frittle areas in flower <laughs> you've got to actually grab people <laughs> by the collar and hold their faces down and say look at that uh, because <laughs> they won't see it uh, they don't have an eye in for, <laughs> for the subtleties of some of those sorts of flowers uh, but then that means some collectors end up with a garden full of things you can't See. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny about they say about oh, have you ever been walking with people who are native orchid enthusiasts? They can spot a leaf that's sort of about this thin, you know, a hundred paces. Yeah. It's just, oh, yeah. Their eyes in for that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's right. Well, and it, it does work that way. I know I've got an eye for for well, not so much for looking for small, but looking for something that 
is subtly different out there. And I know if I'm out in the in the wild somewhere, whether it be the mountains of Crete or the hills of New Guinea or anywhere, um, I'll often see something from quite a distance that nobody else has noticed. And I don't say that my eyesight's particularly grand, um, but there's something that will catch my eye. And I know when I was in Peru, I was determined to see a Mastavillia orchid and everybody said, oh, they're mm. not in flower, they're out of season, you won't see one, blah, blah, blah. And I'd almost given up on it. And I was clambering up the hill that's in the middle of Machu Picchu, which is actually the Machu Picchu hill. It's the hill, it's the name, not the town really, or the ruins. Um, and I saw this tiny fleck of red way out on this little ledge, mm. and it was quite literally a little ledge. Oh. And so I had to walk along sideways uh, so, and, and looking down below myself. Uh, and sure enough, there was one Mastavillia orchid in flower. And I don't think anybody would have seen or noticed that at all, but I've got the eye to look mm. for things Maybe like that. Maybe it's a collector's thing because I, I hunt for different type of fungi up at Mount Macedon too, mm. and I, I find these little tiny you know, things growing out of tree ferns and uh, from 10, me- <clears throat> 10 metres away. And, uh, you know, it's only a couple of mils long and just this little red dot on a trunk and you yeah, you take a photo of it and blow it up and it's this really interesting thing. So yeah, those yeah. little details are, are, are quite nice in nature. Yes. But, you know, in a garden sense, they're pretty well... They're, yeah. they're not anything... Uh, no. on, on the big scale, they're, they're only the, the, the minor details. But, but uh, it does go to show that the, most of the general public wander around with their eyes closed a bit. They don't have that same sense of plants and, and things well, in nature. Well, it's purely because they're not tuned into it. Mm. I'm and sure... You, and you've got to get your eye in too. You've yeah, got to get your eye yeah, in. Yeah. That's mm. the thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. Well, we mm. should we should um, give out the details because oh, yes. the farms yes, actually... <laughs> it, it might help. I mean, well. people are probably dying to go and have no idea where it is, when it's open, what the cost is, etc. Although in these days of Google and all this sort yeah, of stuff... Yeah, you can find yeah. all that stuff, yeah. Incredibly <laughs> quickly now. It's wonderful, really. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's mind-blowing what, what you can find online now. Um, well, we're at um, we're up in the da- um, on the edge of the Dandenongs at... Um, Menzies Creek, which is between Belgrave and Jembrook. So if you drive along from Belgrave towards Emerald, um, there's a roundabout, and that's where our big signs are, which you'll see us. It's um, Melways 124E11, if anybody else uses Melways anymore. <laughs> I've still got mine in the car. I, I can't, I can't, I can't visualise it. I need to see a map. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, these little things that talk to you, I can't cope with that. <laughs> and um, it's on the corner of Grand Tyler Road, Jembrook. Belgrave, Jembrook Road. And if you just Google Hancock's daffodils, we come up top. So Brilliant, brilliant. Or even daffodils, Victoria, all those sort of things, yeah. Yep. Now, you're open every day? Every day till um, the last weekend in September. So it used to be grand final weekend, but no longer. No. No. So. No. So there's no excuse for people to not go and visit? Um, if they've got time, no, absolutely not. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and free entry. Yeah, no no charge for that, no. That and is fantastic. And, Will, can people order and pay for daffodils at the farm now they for can. later delivery? For delivery in February, yeah. March. Yeah, because so, right. so, yeah, I, I have to admit that if I, would, if I went up there, even if I'd written lists for myself of the things I was going to order, I would lose the list. And then you'd forget. And, and you won't remember all the when names the right and which ones you particular. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so if people can actually buy them on the spot, and then you send them out to them in February. That's exactly. fantastic. Exactly. I mean, we, we try and convince people that they, they make lists and say, I'll oh, wait till the catalogue comes out and I'll change. Yeah. But it never happens. You're yeah. right. You, 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 think, you plan to do stuff, but it never happens. You've got yeah. to do it on the spot. Yeah. And, yeah. That's and, why and of we, course, if you've paid for them then and they arrive, you've got to do something with them. 
<laughs> well, it's a nice little Christmas present, actually. Yeah. Phil's ringing us up and saying, oh, I forgot I'd order them. Wasn't this wonderful, you know? Yeah. Yes, they suddenly great. it arrives and it's a big mm. surprise. Yeah. They'd completely yeah. forgotten. Yeah, so. no, I think that's a great idea because mm. I would certainly prefer to buy them when I see them because you, you've got them in your eye at the time. So mm. you know exactly mm. what you're looking at. And so you know if it's the one that you like. Absolutely. Although sometimes people say, oh, I would never order that one. I only, never never liked the bright ones. And they say, oh, there's your handwriting. You did actually order them. And they, but when they see them in the flesh, people's opinions change. They, from the catalogue, people tend to uh, buy sort of paler sort of mm. flowers, I should say. Yeah. And then if they're in, 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 when they come, they always choose the brighter ones, the bright it's colours. It's interesting, isn't it's, it? It is. Because yes. yeah, they really do take your eye. They really stand out. And, but in a catalogue situation... They just people sort of have a prejudice, I think, and they sort of say, "I've got to match my white garden or whatever it is," you know. Right. So, do you ever get people come in and say, "I can't stand yellow"? Because <laughs> um, it'd be a bit silly in a daffodil farm, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to put that on notice. That one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have had people come in my nursery with particular colour prejudices like that, oh, uh, and they and they come in and they make a sweeping statement like, "Oh, I can't be yellow. Couldn't have yellow in my garden." You say, "Well." And you don't have a clump of daffodils, I mean, you know, mm. to, to herald in the spring. Mm. Uh, and normally they'll say, oh, yeah, I might have a clump of daffodils. But they will make an exception for certain plants. Mm. But they, they don't like that colour, supposedly. Mm. Strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, oh, well. well. There's nothing as odd as people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Now, it's more than high time we invited oh, yes, we our should. listeners to join yeah. us, um, particularly while we've got Will in the studio. We've also got uh, Greg Balderston, um, who's also brought in a couple of miniature dafts. Um, and, of course, we've got Stephen. So if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or this morning we have Liz on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Liz, 94198155. We'd love to hear from you. Um, could Greg, I, could yeah, I just, sure, Will. Uh, could I ask just one question about, well, the panel's opinion about classification lists of Clistons and, and um, <laughs> ah. Lucas? Well, what, what is a classification system? Is it for to prove an evolutionary um, lineage or is it to aid people mm. communicating with each other and saying this is what this is? Yeah, and, and therein is the big issue, I think, at the moment, is that a lot of the plant uh, classification is skewing so far towards the scientific DNA and chromosomes and genes and things, which can prove the lineage, certainly, in fact does, um, but doesn't always make for visually clear indicators on where a plant sits. So you end up with the position where you might well say, well, that's in a certain genus now, but there's no actual indications by the plant itself that it belongs in that genus. So it then makes it virtually impossible, unless you already know that species, mm. to place it. Exactly. And so we're going to end up in, in a situation, if the scientists don't think this through really carefully, where we could end up with a classification system that you can't just key a plant out by visual aids. Um, and so then what happens is that you end up in a situation where Unless you're in a, in a laboratory, you can't actually ID a plant. Yes. And mm. so that could end up being a really serious problem. I mean, some of what they're doing is quite logical. I mean, I bought along 
unfortunately it's on its side because it lay on its side all day in the car. But uh, uh, what I would have always grown as a Kiona Doxa, mm-hmm. uh, little blue glory of the snow bulb. The only difference between Kiona Doxas and Skillers was that one had petals that were separated right back to the base yep. and the other one had a, a little bit of a trumpet. So yep. uh, that was the only difference. And you could cross the two genera. So there were Kiona Skillers. So you mm. could get the two different genera together. Now I believe they've lumped them all into Skiller. Are they? Yeah. And it's it logical. logical. It's yep. logical. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, so this isn't Kiona Doxa Sardinensis anymore. It's, it's Skiller Sardinensis. Okay. Labels are even easier to write. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in the case of this one, they are. Uh, so that sort of thing I see as quite logical, where plants are being sort of put in with others where they sort of belong. Mm. But there's some really big changes going on at the moment. I mean, the Melaleuca Callistamine thing is just one of them. Mm. Uh, I mean, um, I was talking to somebody in the Auckland Botanic Gardens back in um, November when I was over in New Zealand, uh, and the Hebes are being thrown back into the old world genus of Veronica. Really? Yeah. Now... The scientist or the botanist I was talking to at Auckland Botanic Garden said, yes, I can logically see scientifically why this could be and why it should happen. But she said, I just can't get my heart round it, you know, because it's a it's a iconic New Zealand genus, Hebe, uh, you know, with with some 150 or more species. Yes. Um, and for it to be thrown back into the genus Veronica is going to cause all sorts of issues. Well, as a gardener, I'd be happy to say all Veronicas are herbaceous and all Hebes are woody. I mean, yeah. easy. And then yeah. now Parahebes can go to Veronica. I don't care. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, see, and that's the problem. And at one stage, they were chopping them all up. I mean, there was there was Parahebe, but then there was um, um, Hiono Hebe and something else Hebe, mm. you know. So there was all these smaller genera that they were creating. Uh, and it's looking like the whole lot are just going to go back into the genus Veronica. So they'll all get lumped back into one big thing. Mm-hmm. Um which so, makes no sense. It makes it no easy for anybody to classify. And that's the issue, Will. I, I agree with you. It's getting to the point where we're going to have to say, well, you know, maybe enough is enough because we've completely thrown this whole thing into a, a position where you've got to be a scientist with a laboratory and a microscope to tell what's what. Uh, and maybe that would be it's sad. increased employment in botany. Well, it could do. <laughs> so nobody wants to fund it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other issue. And of course, in botanic gardens, it employs somebody to rewrite all the labels. Um, <laughs> and that was one of the arguments that was made, in a sense, over the issue of splitting acacia, mm. because the Africans had the first named acacias, and now they find that our acacias are not closely related to their acacias. Um, and in fact, visually, they are quite different. So I can mm. sort of understand why you would chop them up. Um, but in theory, if you believe the way that um, plant naming is worked, there's a law of priority. And so the South African acacia should keep the name and ours should be changed. And one of the arguments was made was that we've got more acacias than anybody else. So just think of the issues, which then means well, that means, all right, what's the issues? Oh, yes, I guess you've got to rewrite write all the labels. That's, that's a good economic reason. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, one of the arguments that was an iconic Australian genus, but then mm. having said that, is not an, a photograph of a giraffe eating the top of an African acacia iconic mm. for the Africans? For the Africans. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's just as iconic, if not more so, mm. than an image of our wattles in Absolutely. flower. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> I'm a bit on the side of the South Africans. I know it will throw things into disarray here, but if we're going to have to split the genus, 
then we should stick by the laws. Yes. Uh, and so as far as I'm concerned, Africans have acacias. We have whatever it is that we would have to name our acacias. And Roger did tell me and I've forgotten. Uh, and it's not going to be an easy no, name. it's a ghastly name. It's a ghastly name. <laughs> uh, but, you know, ghastliness doesn't come into it. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's genera out there that should never have been named what they are because nobody can pronounce them. Uh, but it's just the way it is. Yep. Yeah. Well, that was a perfect segue, Stephen, because we've got... Uh, Tony in Nuffield online. <laughs> Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Tony. How are you? Well, thank you. Uh, so, all right, tell us what's going on down at Hurstbridge. Well, the, on the last Sunday of August of each year, there's a wattle festival. Yeah. And amongst other things, usually the Yarra Yarra group of the Australian Plant Society has a stall selling wattles, as you would think. But there's a whole lot of other activities going on um, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and if they like to go on their computers, it's www.wattlefestival.org.au. Fantastic. And um, there's also, each year they have a steam train coming out from Melbourne uh, to Hurstbridge. And um, I'm just looking at the document here. The inquiries are for that 1300 660072. Oh, that sounds like a fun way of going out there and enjoying the day. Yeah, I'll repeat that. 1300 660 So, Tony, just clarify for us, is this happening on the Saturday or the Sunday? Uh, the Sunday. The Sunday. Uh, yes. Okay, fantastic. Yes, it's usually good fun. <clears throat> and amongst other things, they always have a, a wonderful display of vintage cars mm-hmm. down by the station and a whole lot of other things. Fantastic. And if you want to come to Hurstbridge again the following Sunday, it's the first Sunday of the month and it's the farmer's market. All right, <laughs> yes, which which gets quite a following these days. Yeah, people love their farmer's markets they now, do. don't they? They do. It's yeah. fabulous. Yeah. Fantastic, Tony. All right, then. Okay, thank you for that. Thank you. Bye. I always know when that's on because you can hear the steam train coming through Eltham on the way up to Hurstbridge. Oh, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. good fun. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, that number again, if you'd like to speak to the team on air, do give us a call, 94190155. Uh, we've got Stephen and we've got Greg and now we've got Will all in the studio. So you've got a plethora of uh, people's opinions to choose from. And uh, also, if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. What have we got here, Greg? Um, well, that's the Narcissus cyclamineus. We'll probably tell us more about that than I could. I just brought it along because it's, it, it's my favourite daffodil. I, I'm, I don't have a lot of daffodils in my bulb collection. But that one, I just love, absolutely love it. Well, Steve and I are both drooling. It's a, yeah. a, a, it's a lovely pot of it, I have yeah. to say. Absolutely it's absolutely wonderful. They, really they actually pot. grow really well from seed. Um, so I've been trying to multiply them by bulb for years and years and years. I bought it off Stephen when I was a teenager, probably. Right. Yeah, more than likely. And, um, and, you know, it's taken quite a few years to get a clump of about 10 or 15. So they're from bulbs, are they? Uh, those ones are actually from seed I got okay. from uh, Archibald. Uh, 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 Jim Archibald yeah. uh, and his uh, his wife uh, sent them out to me in their last catalogue, um, but yeah, so I've gr- I've grown them grown them for years to get 
10 or 15 bulbs and then I started hand pollinating them and now I've got a couple of hundred. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> from seed, it's the way to go yeah, uh, yeah. with that particular one, uh, <clears throat> which is a bit of an issue for one I got from Herr Fauser a few years ago, which is a double cyclamineus. Oh, yes. That's a bit of a problem. problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, I can't find a, a stamen in it anywhere. Uh, and he gave me a bulb about, I don't know, four or five years ago and I've now got two. <laughs> and he calls it ugly. Mm. Uh, and it is actually a bizarre looking daffodil, this double cycle. I mean, it's, it's a good name for it. It's a just weird thing that's sort of this irregular just splurge of yellow sta- right. uh, yellow petals. It's not exactly the prettiest so, thing out. And those, those ones that I got from um, Jim Archibald seeds uh, have got a lot more variation in two than the ones I would have bought mm. from you. Yeah, uh, yeah you can see even ago. in that batch there, there's some with much narrower trumpets, yeah, some with bigger trumpets. Um, um, so there does seem to be a lot more variation in those mm. two. So he probably had a, mm. a bigger gene pool than I have. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so. There's very few people seem to be able to grow them to bulb up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Reputedly, some people have got ones that multiply well, but I... I've, I've yet to find that clone, no. uh, I have no. to say. And if, if, if this clone does multiply very quickly, they're keeping it to themselves. Yeah, yeah. They, do, they do get to flowering size fairly quickly from seed, though. I, I yes. think they're probably... Two to three years. Yeah, three, yeah. three or four years old, mm. and they flowered last year. Yeah, um, yeah well, I, I'm often caught uh, by surprise by my stock pots of seedlings mm. because they'll often flower the year before I expect them. Mm. Uh, and I think, oh, I could have potted all those and sold them. Mm. Blast! Mm. <laughs> so, so the, yeah, the Cyclamenius has, has got a... It's a smaller daffodil um but they're 10 15 centimeters tall i guess at most and and the uh the corona points down it's quite uh, narrow and thin and points down and then the uh, petals recurve back up behind it uh, it looks like a like christmas a cy- bonbon yeah yeah they do actually yeah also like a, well, a bit I like think a they look like a, a little giraffe these yeah. ones the yeah. head on the yeah. they're, they're great little plants i yeah. just love they're wonderful yeah. um and I was going to say the, the other thing with it is, and I don't know whether Greg's aware of this, but historically Cyclamineus was discovered back in the 1600s, I think, or even earlier um, in its natural habitat. It was written about and then lost from cultivation. Nobody knew it was there. And it was either Gerard or Culpepper or one of those herbals that mm. came out and they printed a picture of it but said it was, you know, it was obviously mythological, doesn't exist, uh, and then it was rediscovered about 30 or 40 years after that herbal was written <laughs> uh, and brought back into cultivation again. So if he'd still been alive, and I don't know whether it was Gerard or Culpepper now, or it might have been one of the other herbalists, he'd have been slightly embarrassed because uh, <laughs> it actually did exist. <laughs> and, and if you visited Weasley Gardens in, um, in the UK, um, the home of the RHS, there's a wonderful wet lawn, I suppose you'd call it, a sort of a, um, with cyclamineus just just coming yeah. up, just massed in the lawn. There's hoop petticoats, and it's just an amazing sight. Just mm. seeing, it's literally, I'd say the lawns, they never mow it in the winter, and it's probably what, uh. about quarter an acre of it maybe yeah it's quite a big area that daffodil lawn at at Mm. wisley it's it's and it just keeps coming there's just it's just a a wildflower lawn just things just keep coming up the frittle areas come on later and there's um wow um i might add it's pretty hard to duplicate that here not impossible (laughs) yeah i I wouldn't recommend (laughs) trying to get a cyclamineous lawn going anywhere because i can't quite see how we do it in australia (laughs) well we we have a monocot that's just too vigorous in winter yeah yeah grass grass (laughs) Grass. yes exactly Okay, we better get to a few callers. First up, we have Gwen, who's in Mount Waverley. Good morning, Gwen. Good morning. I'd like to ask a question about a camellia. It's about nearly 14 years old, in massive bloom at the moment, but losing all its leaves very fastly. 
Is it in the ground or in a pot, Gwen? In the garden. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful, but there's a carpet of leaves. Actually, I noticed a, a bit last year happening, but this year it's massive, and I'm just wondering what the problem is. It, it's a little hard to be sure, but I've got a funny feeling. You, are the leaves dropping green? Are they are they still green when they drop they off? They are, but they, they're not shiny. They're like dull. I always imagine camellias with a nice shiny leaf. Yeah, and generally speaking, they should be. Um, yeah. I'm wondering whether that camellia is actually suffering from drought. Well, I do water it in the, in the um, summer. Yeah, but I'm suggesting, I mean, I was digging holes in my garden this week, as I said earlier in the program, and the ground's dry. Okay. Um, and camellias have quite a vigorous, thick, matting root system, and they could, in fact, be stopping water getting in. Yes. Um, uh, I would give it a good dose of uh, one of the seaweed products um, and maybe even a wetting agent uh, and see if you can't get some water down in there. And it wouldn't hurt to go to the outside of the drip line, dig a hole down and just see what the soil's doing. Okay. Because uh, funnily enough, the same symptoms could be showing up if the plant were waterlogged. So if it got too wet, it would get dull leaves and drop them. Well, I don't think it'd be too wet. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't have thought so out at Mount Waverley, but um, uh, it's, you know, the same symptoms could show up either way. If the plant's been there 14 years, it's obviously well established. Yes. Um, uh, so my gut feeling is there's something going wrong with the root system of it, and if it's dropping green leaves like that in great flourishes. Well, it is. You can see from my veranda, it's right near the veranda. Yeah. I can see through the tree, good and proper. Yeah, now. well, I would do a little bit of a dig down, and my gut feeling is that when you get down there, you'll find that, in fact, it's dry. Okay. And you may well have to break the sort of um, uh, the problem with the soil being um, uh, hydro- hydrophobic um, uh, by putting down a wetting agent and getting that moisture down. Okay. So try that out anyway, Gwen. I can't think of anything else unless you've got a borer. In at the base of the tree somewhere. What's that mean? Well, it's a, it's a boring insect, <laughs> oh. uh, and it will ring bark the base of the tree, and therefore oh, the sap no. can't get up to the top, and leaves will drop off. But it will be obvious if you get down on your hands and knees and have a look down at the base of the tree somewhere along the stem. And if the leaves are dropping off the whole tree, then the borer, if it's there, will be at the base, and there'll be this little sort of sawdusty ring around the base of the tree. Oh, okay. And if it's borer, you need to clean the base up and put a little bit of natural turpentine down the hole and the borer will come shooting straight out. But it may or may not be too late to save the top of the tree, but it will possibly shoot from the ground again. And that'd be the same reason why the leaf is dull instead of shiny? Yeah, because it's not getting nutrients up the stem. Oh, okay. So, it, look, it's possible it's a borer, but you will be able to find it if you look closely enough <laughs> if it is a borer. Yes. Oh, all yeah, right, it's, then. it's fairly I'll obvious a... once you know what to look for. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And next up we have uh, Fermi and Reedsdale. Good morning, Fermi, and you've beaten me to it. (laughs) (laughs) I've got it all printed out in front of me, ready to talk about. Oh, well, you you can... No, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Welcome. uh, uh, Yes, thank you very much for your welcome, Pam. Um, Yes, the uh, Alpine Garden Society, I'm wearing my AGS hat today, not the uh, Fernie Creek hat. Um, We've got a very special event coming up on the 12th of September, and I'm very sorry, Will, that it actually clashes with the um, National Daffodil Championships down in Lee Gaffer. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually going down there for the Thursday and Friday. I'll see you then. then. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, we've got um, 
Some people will know uh, through having bought the book or having heard Philip Adams that uh, there is a book called The Flora, oh, Flora of the Silk Road. And it's by an English botanist who married a Turkish botanist. And uh, they live in Turkey and they've travelled extensively around that region. And they've basically written a book, an amazing uh, photographic uh, uh, book as well, of the flowers that you find on the Silk Road. And they go from right from Turkey right through to the the other end, which are sort of heading into China through the Tianjin Mountains and things. And and the the pictures just superb, and the the plants are wonderful. And what I'm especially thrilled about it is the fact that some of those areas are very similar to Reedsdale. <laughs> <laughs> they don't sound. I don't think Reedsdale sounds quite as romantic, though. Yes, yeah. The floor of Reedsdale would probably be a little bit more limited. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, it's going to be on the 12th of September, as I said. It's uh, in the afternoon. Uh, we actually don't have our usual hall for that uh, meeting because it's uh, an, uh, out of the uh, schedule. Uh, so we're using the Kawara Hall um, in, um, I think it's called, it's not quite... Kalorama. Kalorama, yes. So if people know the, the Kawara Native Plant Nursery, uh, Plant Garden and Nursery, uh, that's where we're going to be meeting. Uh, it is a ticketed event. Uh, there are, it is not only a different hall, it's a much smaller hall than we use, usually use. So it's, uh, it's quite limited seating. So um, we, you do have to book for it, even if you're a member of, an Alpine, of the Alpine Garden Society, Stephen and Greg. Yes. Uh, you do have to uh, make sure you put in a booking with uh, Di or myself so that um, we uh, have the numbers uh, that we don't over-cater over for. So. Um, yeah, so it's um, uh, Christopher and uh, Basak are coming out here. They're actually coming to Western Australia to do a preliminary tour. They're hoping to... They, they, they work with green tours, and they do a lot of tours of areas uh, for floral um, interest. And um, so they're coming out here They've in September to look at the flora of uh, Western Australia. And uh, so they said, oh, well, we, you know, we've, we've got a day. <laughs> we'll come to Victoria. <laughs> do they have do any they sense know of what the they've distance? done? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, apparently Christopher said, oh, yes, I've flown from um, from uh, Turkey to London to do a talk, and that's about a four-hour flight. Okay. Uh, all right, well, then um, they're probably they'll survive. up for it. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, they're, they're coming out here. Uh, it'll be... It was it was either going to be the Thursday night or a Saturday, and so the, the uh, committee opted for the Saturday. Fair enough. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, unfortunately, it's right in the middle of the Daftal conference, but it's um, it'll be at Kawara. It's at three thirty in the afternoon. You do have to book for it to to get in, uh, and we'll hopefully have some uh, lovely afternoon tea, which the members will be making to bring up. And I see there's also going to be a Q&A session following. Uh, yes, there's actually... Um, the, the Chris will uh, take questions... Christopher and Basak, I think, will take questions afterwards. And then there'll be actually another talk where he'll talk about uh, plant photography. Ah, he'll be showing wonderful. Us, showing us pictures from uh, South America where they've also gone on tour. Mm. So it'll it'll be quite a good one. Oh, it'll be um, fantastic. Yeah. If uh, if you're not a member of the Alpine Garden Society Victorian group or if you're not a current financial member <laughs> of that group, um, there is a charge of $15 a head to get in. So as you can imagine, uh, it's been quite pricey to fly them all the way over from Perth to here. Absolutely. And accommodate them and then uh, fly them back again. Yep. So. 
Now, okay. now, Fermi bookings. How do people go about booking? Uh, there's, I think that's where I'll have to leave it to you to read out the details on that form there. Okay, so. no problem. So the person to contact is Diana Barry. Now, her mobile number is 0407 490 I'll repeat that. 0407 490 Or you can email agsvic at gmail.com, agsvic at gmail.com. All right. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll get a few people along. I'm hoping that Greg will actually be able to pack up his stall that, that Saturday morning and if he's out of content by 12.30, he'll get to the Danny Well, well the market doesn't finish till one, so hmm? <laughs> it's yeah, a bit but, tricky. Yeah, just... Um, <laughs> I, I guess, do you do much sales between twelve thirty and one? Uh, no, on. but you can't get out of Kyneton. Oh, it's, uh, it, it's a it's a pretty yeah, tricky in. market to get out, out of there. <laughs> yeah. And there's the the whole uh, thing of the twenty uh, odd uh, crates I have to pack back yes, into the van, no. and the fifty or well, sixty you have to odd. Do a really good sales day, so you don't have. <laughs> so I don't have them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it'd be nice to go to definitely. Yeah, well, it, it's uh, it'll be a one one off unless uh, we can when, if they decide to. Um, come back and do that tour, uh, that they will um, they might have a bit more time to come over here, but, but there's no guarantees on that, so we're definitely we're pushing ahead with getting them out here this year. So Absolutely. Yeah. So, and other, I'll put in a plug. I know so many other things are happening on the 29th, but um, we've got our garden open on the 29th for um, the Fernie Creek Society. Um, the people are invited up to come to our garden at Reedsdale. It is a complete mess. Do not expect the whole place to be an open garden. Oh, come sure. on, Fermi, get your act together and tidy up, will you? <laughs> yeah. Well, we've it's also about had the plants. renovations and, um, and things. Hold on a minute. So anyway, but if you need to, details of that, you need to contact me and um, you can, I'll give you my number. Yes. It's 54253114. Just repeat that, Fermi. 54253114. But that, it's a Fernie Creek meeting, but uh, if you're a member or if you're a friend, you're allowed to come as well. Okay, excellent. Okay. All right, all the best with the, with the uh, the talk. I think it's going to be very exciting. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. See you later. Right, next we have, uh, let me see, we have Robert who's down in Phillip Island. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, how are you all? We're well. Yeah, great down here. Looks as though it's going to be a nice day. Good. Yeah, yeah. Look, it might be of some interest to Will and uh, your team. Uh, yesterday, uh, Will, I was up at John Smith's place. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, John's a grower, interesting grower. Just a small a, grower, yeah. Mm. Yes, tires, <laughs> yes. But I went up particularly to have a look. John grows 99% now in pots. Yep. Uh, he uh, finds it easier to grow them in pots. Mm. So I've taken particular interest in how they are doing second, third, fourth year. And uh, he seems to have success where I can't personally, but they're doing very well. He's in a very sort of coldish place with a lot of uh, mist, but uh, and these bulbocodiums are interesting. He, he grows them in self-watering pots where I, I always stick to keeping them dry. So just a difference how different people do things. Then I had the privilege of calling into the great Graham Blumrelly's um, 
daffodil patch yesterday. Oh, good, yeah. Yes, so Graham, I had a tour of inspection with Graham and he showed me all some of these new varieties and colours. And the other thing I was going to ask you, I've had now and again patches of daffodils that that actually sulk. Mm. I've got, say, 20 or 30, I've had some two or three lots that just haven't flowered for years. Mm. I've often wondered, do they uh, uh, withdraw or...? or it's yeah. a good question. Sulking's quite a good word for it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we call it bl- the game blind. But, um, yeah, look, daffodils tend to... some some. They're like all us humans. They're all different, and each one behaves differently and does different things in different places. But as a rule... Um, they tend to um, some will cope being well with being crowded, and some don't. And they, as they keep multiplying all the time, they always are always getting more and more daffodils in one spot. So they tend to get more crowded. And some varieties love it that way, and they prefer it to be crowded, and others don't. And yeah. I suspect the ones you're finding are sulking. You probably need to be dug up and spread out a bit. I sort of threaten them sometimes with the spade, and then they flower the next year. Flower the next year. <laughs> I use the axe for shrubs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or well, chainsaw, yes. find some of the ones uh, from Tassie yes. can flower the first year, mm. but, but then they can be a bit shy the following. I, I find they take a little longer to settle in, but mm. maybe it's because I'm in a warmer area. No, I, I think if, if you mean the ones that are bred in Tassie, yeah. yes. I, I, think, I think it's just purely they've been bred better for Tasmanian conditions than our conditions yeah. and that's why we continue to have a breeding program because some it seems the ones you grow that do well for you obviously are going to do well for other people nearby and those that um, you import from other places may not do as well, well so, so, so mm. can you see pot culture can you see the bigger daffodil John grows cyclamenius is two yep. in pots but can you see a future for the pot culture well daffodils? it's it's uh, growing anything in pots um requires more skill um uh i remember the dennis norgate once saying to me he said oh you know because you all remember dennis growing stuff in his side of his hill there yes. and um he used to be all oh, this growing things in pots it's got whiskers he on it he doesn't like it he doesn't <laughs> like it no he's got whiskers <laughs> and um and he, he's right that nowadays it's a lot easier with the modern potting mixes because yeah. they are uh, uh, to a standard, and it, and you can always every batch is going to be the same, and you know how they can plants are going to behave, and that and many most plants respond very well to it. Um, for things like bulbs, um, it takes a lot more skill to grow them, just simply because those mixes tend to be a little bit drier. The the um, yeah. the uh, modern potting mixes, they yeah. just don't keep enough, and that's why I think he's he's the, the bulbicodians. John's putting them with a, a self watering things. It's keeping that mix that. Um, the pot at what's called field capacity, where it's always the amount, the right amount of water in there. Oh, um, yes, yes. I, I think for certainly um, the daffodils that I do grow in pots, uh, just like the normal like sand-based potting mix, well well drained and whatnot. But uh, for the crocuses and Mediterranean and Middle Eastern and South African sort of bulbs, I always put uh, finely crushed scoria, a little bit of that in there. Into into good quality sand based potting mix. And so that's that adding a little to, bit more sites for yeah, water to yeah, suck yeah. too. And and so it, when you water it, there's uh, areas for that water to fill in. Um, but it also it's really free draining as well, and and mm. the water doesn't mm. sit in there, and mm. the the potting mix doesn't collapse as easily. And um, so adding adding a little bit of scoria, I'm not sure how to go for daffodils, but it certainly works for everything else I grow, and the few daffodils that I do grow in pots like the cyclamenius and 
Yeah, like because that. modern potting mixes tend to be basically pine bark based mm. and pine bark compost. So mm. it's always so you might have a a um, bulk density at a certain rate when you first pot it up, but over time it's going to change and mm. collapses down. Well, well, thanks very much, Will, and we'll we'll, we'll see you at the daffodil. Uh, yes, absolutely. You, you, I'll be there with, with wings on. Yes, thank You'll you. be there with daffodils on. And daffodils <laughs> on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, good to talk to you all. No. Okay. Thank you again. Bye bye. Bye. And uh, next up we have uh, Graham, who's out in Surrey Hills. Good morning, Graham. Oh, good morning. I just wanted to uh, let you know that the Herb Society will be represented at the Siciliano's Open Garden Rose Creek Estate next Sunday, the 30th of August, from 11 till 4.30, uh, when they will be... uh, uh, um, have their wines and olive oil for sale. Uh, There will be Italian music... um, food and jollity and so forth. It's always a good day out at the Siciliano's Open Garden. Um, They've been represented quite recently on Better Homes and Gardens and uh, I dare say a number of your listeners have have seen that. So that's Rose Creek Estate at number two Craig Street, East Keylor on uh, the 30th of August from 11 till 4.30. There's a $5 entry, which uh, money goes to a good cause as usual, and uh, it's really a good day out, so I recommend it. uh... Fantastic. Thanks for that, Graham. All right, then. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodness gracious, there's so much going on. There is, isn't there? (laughs) Spring is definitely sprunging. (laughs) And I always love going out to Rose Creek Mm. Estate. It's such a surprise. You you, you park in the suburban. You you walk down their driveway and suddenly it all opens out and Mm. it's it's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, Stephen, we had a query from the outside line there. Yes, a listener does garden maintenance and would like to discuss a narrow planting. Driveway about 60 metres long and narrow. Uh, the width can vary from one metre down to 20 to 30 centimetres. So we're talking about a long, narrow bed. And those beds can be very difficult to deal with, particularly on driveways, because you obviously can't have big, bulky things that are going to get in the way of vehicle access and what have you. Uh, and you certainly don't want heavy, sticky, twiggy things. But I guess it depends a lot on how you want it to look as to what you put in place. If it's a driveway bed that's got a fence along next to it, which one assumes it will have, if it's only going to be narrow, it's got to have something on either side, um, then you could utilise the fence and you could, in fact, grow uh, climbing plants. You could grow things that you espalier along the fence and that way you can soften the fence as well and then keep plants in in order. Uh, And the list of things you could espalier is huge. The main problem is which way the sun's coming from. Yeah, that does have something to do with it, and it's not here on this mm. um, uh, on this piece of paper. So if it were a semi-shady sort of aspect, if it was facing to the south or east, I might consider things like garriers, um, camellias. Uh, there's lots of things that you could actually espalier along it. If it was a more sunny site, you could even consider some of the uh, flowering or, or fruiting trees. There's nothing wrong with having apple trees in the front garden. Crab apples. Mm. Crab apples. Mm. All those things could make fabulous espaliers. Um if it's a sunny spot, there's a whole range of climbers that you could roll on the fence, things like Virginia creepers, Boston ivies, wisterias, um, uh, star jasmines. There's oodles of that sort of stuff. And then 
if you've got that and you still you'll still have ground at the base. So you'll need things along the bottom. Now, you can either have something fairly permanent there, uh, which can be pleasant enough all year round, but often not particularly spectacular. Um, so you can have sort of strappy things like liriopes and things like that if it's semi-shaded or what have you. Um, I'd though opt, if it was me, to have some seasonal changes going on because I get really bored with gardens that look the same all year round. And there's where the bulbs and other small things come into their, to their own. Because you can plant colonies of those things in between more permanent plants, and because there's bulbs that flower in the spring and there's other things that flower in the, the summer, whole look of it, yeah. yeah, and, and it does. It gives you that sudden change uh, of of look throughout the season. It punctuates your season, so there's no reason if it's got enough light where you couldn't have some nice daffodils growing there in the spring. Uh, you could use what I call uh, dinner out for the garden and plant some tulips. Um, uh, I love them. I mean, they're not there for very long, but they're a lot of fun and they're, and they're bright and splashy. And, 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 and you can hoik them out after they finish flowering and plant something else in their place. I mean, if you're paying less than a dollar a bulb uh, for some of these things, you whack them in the ground, enjoy them. When they're finished, they start to die down. You pull them out, do whatever you like with the bulbs, chuck them away. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and then plant some summer annuals mm. in their place. So you can have that. You, you can do circle. the same thing with the fence too. Is like yeah. You can have a, a, a crabapple espalier on the fence and maybe a winter-growing clematis or, yeah. or yes. a tropiolum or something yeah. growing up the fence in winter when the trees bear all the, yeah. the so you can, And I guess in a sense it comes down to um, how tricky you want to be with it and what sort of maintenance level you're prepared to to go to That's right. with these things. Yep. I mean, a lot of people do their sort of row of mondo grass or whatever. Uh, and think that's done, don't have to touch it again. And in a sense they don't, except when they have to <laughs> yeah. put the brush cutter through it for some reason or another. I've never quite figured that horticultural <laughs> technique out either. Um, but, um, you know, so it really does come down in the end of the day on just how much you want to get payback for that area. Yes. And the more you want back from it, the more time you've got to put into it. Yes. I always remember Christopher Lloyd saying that low-maintenance gardens look like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and I thought that was very apropos. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, and, and that's the thing. I mean, he was one of those gardeners that wanted to do things to the nth degree. So for him, garden maintenance wasn't an issue because that was the whole point in gardening was to maintain it and to put work and effort into it. Mm. Um, whereas others will not want to put that same sort of effort in, but will want at least it looking full and bountiful. Yep. So it really does come down to your own. It's, it's funny you mentioned Christopher Lloyd. I, I immediately thought about him for a number of reasons. I, he used to, I used to send him our catalogues when I used to work at Diggers, and yeah. um, he once wrote a whole article on the, in the Daily Telegraph about um, because we were proposing um, pink evening primrose flowers all, all, all year long sort of thing, yeah. and he wrote a whole article about saying this Australian nursery was saying about how we should grow these things all year round. Oh, it's the worst thing in the world. Why would anybody want something to flower all year round? You know? <laughs> You wrote a whole article about it, people yeah. in the Daily Telegraph. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, in fact, in some ways I agree with Christo too in, in that if something does flower all year round, it's like having an evergreen shrub. It then becomes expected and you actually don't notice it so much. It's background. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's why I wouldn't want daffodils all year round in my garden yeah. because if I had them all year round, I wouldn't have the excitement of the first daffodil. Mm. And in fact, a friend of mine once said to me that I'll never need drugs because I get so <laughs> excited by the first daffodil. Um <laughs> And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, so 
it, it really does come down to your, your passion and how much you want out of an area. Absolutely. I mean, I've got some things in front of me here that if it was a shady um, mm. side of a fence, uh, the epimediums and hellebores and things would be ideal. Would be gorgeous. Uh, I mean, I love epimediums. There's this whole range of colours in them, fabulous foliages. There's some that are delicate and difficult to grow. There are some that are tough and hardy and easy to grow. There's a whole range of colours in the flowers. I mean, none of the flowers are overly big or spectacular. So if you're driving down your driveway at 60 kilometres an hour, you won't notice them. Um, but if you're walking at a gentle pace down your driveway, they're really pretty, dainty, mm, elegant plants. Beautiful. Uh, and, and the foliage is lovely. They, they've got these lovely heart-shaped leaflets. Some, Some of them colour colored stems. The stems. Yeah, the yes. colours of stems. I mean, they're another group of plants that... The new gardeners often walk past them without noticing them because mm. they haven't got, as we said before, their eye in. But once people start to appreciate subtleties and elegance of form and, and all that sort of thing. there's a lot of subtlety in the epimediums oh. and the leaf shapes and the, the oh, spots yeah. and the I mean, colours. The, the and two I've bought in, I mean, you can see that they're both from the same genus, but they're so different. I mean, one has rather smooth leaves. One has rather heavily veined, prickly-edged leaves. One has little apricot open starry flowers. The other one has little tiny white narrow petaled flowers on it uh, they get interesting liver spots on the new growth there's all sorts of good things about them and mm. once people really start to appreciate them they can get quite excited you've just got to be careful that you don't plant too little or too many you just need to get an epimedium <laughs> well done Pun time Ah yes uh, That's an adaption of a John Patrick joke Just yeah. in case think people think it's really sick Because it was his first Right <laughs> He's to blame Yeah he's to blame <laughs> Okay Greg let's, let's get back to some of the ones that you've brought in Because you've got some stunning bulbs there out in flower Well um, I, I'll, the first thing I'll, I guess I'll talk about Which I try and do every time I, I come in Is, is an oxalis Yes Greg's my, Greg's yeah. my acolyte yeah, When yeah. it comes to oxalis yes. Um and and I, I someone said that uh, on a on another radio station yesterday they were bagging oxaluses. So, oh really? So you know in the in the trying to be even handed and, and give equal time to, to things. <laughs> uh, let's uh, and it's it's my favourite oxalis too. It's oxalis versicolor, uh, the barber's pole oxalis. And I think if I if I still had every single bulb I've ever grown of this, I could fit it in a ten or twelve inch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they don't just, spread. They, they clump. don't spread. It's yep. just a fantastic little yep. plant. And um, you wouldn't pick it. You wouldn't pick it as an oxalis because of the foliage. Sure enough, the the flower looks like yeah, an oxalis, yeah. but the foliage so, is so well, different. Well, after it's flowered and and a little bit before it's flowered, they, in a big clump, they almost look like a some sort of weird little miniature conifer, almost. Yes. Uh, uh, in a pot or yeah. in the rock garden, um, and yeah, my big thing with it is it doesn't multiply enough. Um, and I'm not sure if it was this one or another one on social media somewhere on Facebook. Uh, someone asked me what the weed potential of it was. Right. And, and I said, same as about 98% of the other Oxala species, zero, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> there's only, only a small percentage of them that are weeds. Uh, and this definitely isn't one of them even mm. close. So it's, it's uh, when the flowers pop up, they're uh, a white flower with a red edge. And uh, they look like little barber's poles when they've closed up of an evening. And uh, also at the, at the top of them, they almost look like someone's carved out a uh, radish. If you if you look at the yes, top of the flower, yes. in the, at the detail, it's got the red edge and the white centre, and it looks like someone's carved it out of a little radish. And when they open up, they're pure white inside. Um, and just the the outer of the petals, just amazing though, with the little red stripe up. It's, now you do uh, know, Greg, that little... if we were in New South Wales at this point in time, yes. uh, you wouldn't be able to talk about them at all because the New South Wales government has banned the genus. I have. Have they people... really? Yes. In fact, the only win I've ever had with um, uh, the weed experts was I was at a conference about what 
we in the media could say about weeds, which is basically negative things, which in a sense is fair enough if they're truly weeds. Um, and some boffin from New South Wales got up and said, we've banned Oxalis. And I said, well, that's fantastic because that means you've banned Oxalis lactea, which is a native of Mount Kosciuszko and on mm. the endangered species list. <laughs> and there was sudden silence because they hadn't considered native species. Mm. No. Which there are several of. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. several native species. So it's the only win I've ever had. I believe the legislation, and I haven't seen it. They, so they I have, I think, I believe there are a couple of... Uh, species that they, you can grow in New South Wales. What about your Oxalis tuberosa? Well, I was going to suggest yeah. that one as well because, I mean, it's a vegetable. Yeah. Uh, and in theory, if you can... Because uh, the legislation apparently now says excluding native species, so they just uh. cut out the native species thing so they got themselves around it that way. Um oh. But, you know, to ban a whole genus of plants because of the weediness mm. of just a handful of species, I mean, is, is silly. I mean, if you're going to do that, then you should ban all roses because of the dog rose, mm-hmm. which is a And is, there's is a al- alliums and yeah, all and sorts look, of other you things. You should so, be yeah. allowed to grow onions no, because of onions. angle onions. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, yeah. you know, as soon as you start banning Well, they did general, the same thing with willows. Yeah, ban the whole genus, which, yeah. uh, well, apart from a very, very small number of willows, yeah. one of which makes me laugh because one of the willows you're still allowed to grow is the weeping pussy willow. Which is a fertile female clone. Isn't it the Kilmarnock willow? Yeah, well, that's what they call it, the Kilmarnock willow. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's actually a fertile female clone that yeah. we're, we're growing and grafting onto standards in this country. And I've had seedlings come up around my garden of ordinary pussy willow well, from my weeping one. Yeah. So, and, and and in the same thing as that, someone was saying they got some seeds of an oxalis in, and I thought, oh, I don't know if you're allowed to do that. So I checked no. on Aquas, and you are. There's actually... A, a, a list of oxalis seeds you are allowed to bring in, one of which is oxalis corniculata, which is <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which is, is one of the weedy ones. Yeah. And, and it's just like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, for something that ha- is such a big genus and so few of them, it, it, it is, and it's still to this day at the markets. As soon as you say oxalis, I people know. are up in arms. I and, know. It's only and, because uh, they know it by its botanical. Yeah. And, and, and most people you can talk around, there's a few that are fairly like, oh, I wouldn't grow that. I know it's pretty, but I'm not going to grow well, it anyway. If, just if you want an organic control for oh, chooks. chooks. Chooks, yes, they'll well, dig them out. Well, what, well no, they just, they just keep pecking it. They, they mm. prefer to browse on oxalis. If you've got, yeah. say, if you've got a patch of... Um, Sour sob, mm. and you just keep the chooks going to that area, and or if you've got them in your pot, sometimes you and just that's leave the best them. Way to do and they just keep pecking; them. they just keep defoliating mm. to the mm. point where where they, there's nothing left there's in them, and they die. To, there's no juice mm. left in them. Mm. Yeah. And, and the other oxalis I bought, which, which is a, a bit more of a thug, <laughs> and and certainly need to keep an eye on it. But um, again, you know, there's probably stuff that if you were pressed, you could get at Bunnings that was. It spread just as much as this, and and it's and only the fact that they're out. called oxalis. I yeah. mean, there's lots of plants we plant in our garden that we want to cover the ground. Yeah, yes. So we buy things that are called ground covers. Yeah, there's that hard place too where it's if it's too rare, people don't want to grow it, and if it does well, people all of a sudden call it's a weed. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, that it's the, it's the strange anomaly in gardening. I always say people whinge if they can't grow it, yeah, they whinge yeah. if they can. Yeah. You know, so you get this sort of weird sort of dichotomy where you know. I don't know what a plant is meant to do sometimes, mm. you know. How do you find the right balance with these things? And, and you just need to – I always remind people that a weed's only a plant that you don't want and it's in the wrong spot. So mm. That's exactly but that right. That particular <laughs> little oxalis is scrumptious. So, it's so this, this is uh, oxalis purpurea nigrescens and the uh, it's got deep burgundy – Foliage. Uh, uh, velvety foliage on yes, it. It's very, cut. very close to the ground, so it doesn't get much more than, uh, you know, a few centimetres off the ground, uh, unless it's in a little bit of shade, and then it'll come up and look a bit messier. But in full sun in winter, so it's winter growing, mm-hmm. summer dormant, doesn't need any water at all. 
and you've got this uh, deep burgundy foliage and these quite large hot pink flowers, it's quite, uh, which quite, is one of my favourite colour combinations. Yeah, honestly, it's a great colour combination, and, uh, and it's really in your face. It's really yeah. bright, and, and you know, it's it's it's. I, I think it's a it's a really good plant. It's a it's a decent ground cover, and if you just plant it and leave it be, it's not going to come up in the neighbour's yard, or you know, it, it slowly sort of forms a, a mat in where it is, mm. and the only problem comes with some of them is when you start, you know, if you ran a rotary hoe through them and then through yeah, the soil around everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And then yeah. they do they do uh, come up in, in places. That plant is fantastic underneath deciduous shrubs like roses and things that are just mm. looking like leftover barbed wire in the winter. Yeah. And you've got this mat of oxalis in flower underneath them. Mm. And then in the summer, it disappears when your roses yeah. are doing their thing. Mm. I think they're absolutely mm. valuable plants, yep. personally. Mm. Well, and as I said to you before the program, Greg, grow it in a pot. Yeah, yeah. And you that's know? the other thing. And and if you have and then got you don't have other, a other plants in pots, like if you've got a small weeping maple in a wine barrel or or uh, things like that, they're perfect companion plants Be for, wonderful for something underneath, underneath instead of yes. just having potting mix. Be beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, great little plants. Yeah, and I'm definitely. so glad there's somebody else out there that likes oxalis. Well, I think Craig, Craig from Gentiana's uh, on them too, and and uh, also David from Gindervik. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, likes his oxalis yes. too. So there's a few of us out there. And yeah. it's just, it's yes, there's a few oxaloholics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, let's go to Carol, who's out in East Bentley. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Look, I have to tell you this. I didn't, couldn't get 3CR on, I only listen on the Sunday morning, and I couldn't get it on my radio. And this went on for months, you know, I'd occasionally turn it on, no. So I thought, this is strange, and it's not in the Green Guide anymore, maybe 3CR's off the air. Oh, no, so, we're still here. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I went online, and you've got podcasts, I think they call them. That's there. correct. Yes, and I thought, oh, wonderful. So I went and played around with my radio, and uh, I got it. And good. it was like a good friend. <laughs> the <laughs> podcasts are really good. Voices. Yeah. Yes. Look, I, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, a fissifolia. Yep. I bought it and it's grafted yeah. onto a, um, a another tree. Now, um, my brother says my plants should have wheels on them. I'm always moving things about. <laughs> yeah. I know. So I put it in potting mix and what I've done, I've compromised the, um, the root system. I put it back in the ground, but I've put it where it gets full sun, but it's a very, very windy situation. It's about a metre high. Mm. Um, do you think that's a bad spot for it? No. Look, it's- as long as it's well-drained, um, yeah. the physifolias come from Western Australia, so they come from a fairly dryish, hottish environment. Um and so as long as you've got a well-drained site, um, the grafted ones don't get too hugely big as a rule. They flower prolifically and they're particularly nice colours and things, so that's why they've been selected. Um, and they'll tolerate a fair bit of wind, so I think it's probably a perfectly fine place to put it. But don't try and put wheels under your Carimbia physifolia because a lot of our native plants don't like to move around too often. So once you've got it in the ground and settled in a place, it might take a little while to adjust. You might get a little bit of wind damage and things initially, um, particularly if it's come not long ago from a nursery where it's been in a sheltered environment and stuff. So it may take a little while to adjust and settle down. But once it does, it should be fine. Oh, great. Can I ask another question? Sure. Lemons. I get those gull wasps all the time and Mm. I just can't grow them. Is there any lemon tree that 
doesn't acquire them. Nope. Yeah, very, easy, very easy question to answer, no. All citrus <laughs> will get gall wasp. Uh, and so, yes, they haven't bred a, a gall wasp-resistant uh, variety of citrus and probably never will. No. Nope. Um, so it's one of those things that we have to learn to... Um, to deal with and to manage. Even uh, my native finger lime got them. Not terribly many, but yes, yeah, uh, and yeah, I was uh, on to it. But, yeah, all, all citrus. Yeah, all citrus will get it. Uh, and the problem, the basic problem, I think, is that because some of us deal with it and others don't, there's always going to be reinfection yep. uh, from neighbours who just That's leave right. their trees covered in gall wasp and do nothing about it. Uh, if everybody did it, uh, then we'd probably control it to a certain extent. Uh, I can't imagine that they'll ever have any sort of chemical treatment for it. And if they do, I'm not sure I'd want to eat the lemons off the tree anyway. Because mm. um, what's the point if you're going to be dosing your tree with some sort of systemic insecticide it's surely got to go into the fruit uh, so it's just a matter of managing it carol that's all you can do you just look at it as as it's time to prune the lemon tree <laughs> the only problem is i've got it's such a tiny lemon tree mm. and they got to it yeah. and i cut off so much branch but if i cut off any more i'll cut all the leaves off so it'll die so no it won't die it won't die it won't die it won't die uh it might it be will worth actually doing that. shoot and mm. go up to heaven yeah, so oh. yeah, so there's, there's. I mean, it, it is hurting to do that. I know. I mean, I hate to prune a tree back to that sort of extent just because it's got some issue. Um, but yeah, look, uh, I'd probably leave it for another week. Uh, get over this next week. We'll start getting longer days. It'll start to warm up. Uh, then I'd prune the whole lemon tree right back. Get rid of all the gall wasp. You've got to do it before the end of August anyway, yep. really. Yeah. Uh, and then um, uh, it will reshoot again. And then just be assiduous. Watch out for it every year. As soon as you see signs of it, whip it out. Okay. That's what I do. And otherwise, move to somewhere like Macedon where nobody around you has got any citrus trees and I touch wood, uh, haven't in fact had any gall wasps in my citrus trees. Absolutely. Yeah, so you're the same, are you, Will? Yeah. Mm, yeah, so I've got a whole row of citrus trees that I planted in the garden about 10 or 12 years ago and so far I haven't seen any gall wasps. So they haven't been able to find their way to... Um, uh, the pleurisy plains of Macedon. Well, so if you far. live in Macedon, you're not allowed to plant a lemon tree. Why? Stephen won't let you. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, none of my neighbours are allowed to have them. They're, they're not allowed to be planted around the area. I'm the only one. And if I can keep it that way, I'm likely to stay free of, you of are. gall wasp. Yes. Yeah, because I mean, it's a little flying insect, so it's got to fly from somebody's lemon tree to get to mine. That's right. So you know, and that's the other thing. I would, I would. If I was buying a citrus tree anywhere, I'd be so careful to make sure I bought one that had absolutely no signs of anything on the stems and what have you, because I wouldn't want to bring one home to then suddenly introduce gall wasp. Yes, okay. So, yeah, so (laughs) I've got enough citrus trees now. I don't need any more, so I'm just going to sit back and be smug, at least until such time (laughs) as gall wasp finds me. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Good luck. Bye, Carol. Bye. Bye. Now, Stephen, we've got a whole lot of queries that have come in oh, from the outside God, God, line. God, God. So, Put my um, glasses on, try and, and I don't, yes, yeah, so we, we need to get to a couple more of those if we can in the time remaining. Um, uh, somebody's, well, this one's a really quick one. Somebody's got a uh, dwarf species, yellow flowered rhododendron, eight to ten years old, in a rock garden. Uh, can it be moved? Yes. And you could do it this week, even if it's in flower. Rhododendrons go into their, nor- into their active growth after flowering. And, in fact, the Dutch dandenongs 
rhododendron growers used to dig them up out of the paddock, put hessian around their roots and sell them to you in flour. <laughs> so there's absolutely no reason why you can't do that. Um, just get a good root ball. Yes, you just need to get a nice, solid root ball. Um, uh, somebody's got an itiophila. I assume they mean an acacia. Uh, windy position facing west. It keeps blowing over, even <laughs> though it has been staked. Uh, yeah, well, there's no point in trying to keep an acacia standing up if it's going to keep falling over because it's just going to keep falling over. So I would pull it out, plant something else. A lot of acacias tend to be brittle and and shallow of roots, so they're not something I would normally use in a really windy spot. Yes. If you want a native for a windy spot, you'd be better to look at Malalukas or Callistamins or maybe they're the same, uh, or some of those other things. Um, so I'd let it fall over and turn it into kindling. Um, well, I used to have idea filling, <coughs> growing as a hedge in front of our place in Langwarren, mm-hmm. um, and it was fine. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering whether this, the, the original plant was a bit root Well, it might have been, but mm-hmm. I, I find a lot of the acacias brittle. But see, as a hedge, you've got a slightly different situation. If you've got an isolated plant, mm-hmm. it can be more wind-prone than if it gets, it's... It gets pushed around from a different yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah, you know, if they're planted in a full hedge, they actually help protect each other mm-hmm. a bit and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so it, it could be something that... Could be an issue like that. Oh, gawks. Um, somebody at Mount Macedon has got some uh, planted, uh, I think it says cork oaks. Um, and camellias. And, and camellias. And something uh, is eating. Nibbles the, at the ground at level. At the ground level. It's likely to be rats or might be hares. Possibly, because we do get a few hares around Macedon and they will eat the bark off young trees. So it could be hares or something like that. Uh, the only probable way to get rid of them is to completely fence those plants off with a good mm. wire surround. Mm. And I'd make sure the wire is reasonably small gauge because if it is the rats, rats, rats yeah. they can go in. through pretty small holes. Oh, yes. the, the hares um, tend to go up a bit higher and they'll strip down. Yeah. A thing of bark all the way yeah. down the trunk yeah. too. So, yeah. but you know, there's not enough information here to get no. a sense of the what the damage Except looks that, like. That she does say that they they keep eating it through until the whole tree falls yeah. over, which is yeah. yeah. Well, cool. it's probably more likely rats, but you know, it could be could be hares. But anyhow, <laughs> the only way to do it is to exclude the plant uh, or exclude the animal from the plant. So you've just got to find some way of keeping them away, uh, whatever they are. And it may not hurt to go out with a torch at night and see if you can catch a yeah, little yeah. blighter at it so that you know what your enemy is. Uh, I always like to know who I'm fighting. Well, uh, if, the, if the actual hardwood's getting chewed off too, it might be a cockatoo or something as well. They, they mm. hop down But it's on the only happening at ground level. Yeah, they'll, they'll hop they'd... down at the ground level sometimes. Yeah. I know yeah. they, they'll They're ripping crocuses. the Romulias out of my lawn yeah, at the moment. Bulbs so. and crocuses mm. and little dwarf irises, and they just rip them off uh, ground level. Yeah, there's a lot of them around at the moment, have you mm. noticed? Yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, I'm getting a few king parrots around oh, Nassau at the nice. moment, which we haven't seen for. Well, I've never known them to be a native to our area, yeah. and uh, they're coming into our veranda, and I'm hand feeding them already, and I've only met them about a week ago. Okay, <laughs> cheeky little buggers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We, I think, we have a fan of the oxalis, Greg, oh, because <laughs> um, one of our listeners wants you to name the one with the burgundy pink flowers. So. Oh, it's uh, oxalis purpurea nigrescens. <laughs> mm. So it's, At least it's that's one of those what we long think it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of, actually, oxalis are dreadful things when it comes to IDing because there's not a monograph out there yeah. on them. I think the last monograph it's on oxalis, or something. yeah, it was yeah. way back, and so it's so <laughs> out of date now. It wouldn't matter. And I did even try and see if I could source a second-hand copy of that once yeah. through one of those sort of book hunting things. There's that's guaranteed of it on the they can find any book in the world, but they never found my mm. oxalis. You can book. get a copy on the internet. Oh, it's yeah. digital. But yeah. uh, like you were saying before with the Mount Kosciuszko one, I still call that. 
um, oh, Magellanica. Magellanica, yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking, which one are you talking about? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, well, apparently <laughs> they reckon that the Australian one shouldn't be the same as the Magellanic one, okay, even right. though they look the they same. Very similar, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Um, but so, yes. so, yeah, it's Oxalis purpurea nigrescens. Mm. Right. Excellent. And I have some sort of doubt about the name, mm. only from the fact that the other Oxalis purpureas have bigger leaves and flower earlier, and yeah. have bigger mm. flowers, and so they're visually comparatively different mm. um, to the purple leaf yeah. one. But, uh, uh, but again, with the oxalis too, the you know the um, polyphyllas can look quite different yeah. too. And, and I've got a whole pile of oxalis like flavors that. that I'm convinced are probably different sort of species and shouldn't have been lumped together yeah, all yep. as one. Yeah. Um, but as you say, there's nothing on them to say. So so I I sell it as purpurea, yeah, and so do I. And and yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and certainly uh, there's a, a good group, if, if anyone's on Facebook and loves Oxalis, there's a, a good group uh, on uh, Oxalis on Facebook. Okay. Um, and there's some people who know their stuff around the world and it's actually quite an interesting little group to get a, uh, to get into on the, on Facebook and uh, they'll certainly tell you uh, whether you've got the right name on something fairly quickly. <laughs> and, and they do seem to know their, their business too. You know, Excellent. People in Europe and New Zealand growing Oxalis yep. that... Have got better access than we do to oxalis plants, also. Yeah, excellent, Greg. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, well, I Facebook's do, you. Uh, Facebook's definitely an, an Instagram. Uh, there's lots of photos on there, and um, uh, so uh, there's uh, longanomous plants on Facebook. And, you better spell it for listeners. Uh, that's where it gets tricky because <laughs> there's is. lots of N's and M's in it. There is. Uh, so it's uh, longanomous, as in long. Long. Uh, L O N G I N O M. US. Uh, and so, yeah, Facebook's uh, Longanomous Plants is a business page. Uh, Instagram's at Longanomous. And uh, also uh, check out my personal page on Facebook because I've got all the plants I don't sell on there too. And uh, my little mushroom fungi hunts up at Mount Macedon, which there's uh, quite a good, there's about f- uh, maybe 150, 200 different types of fungi that I've wow. started just in the last few months okay. up there. And, um, yeah, and all the little rare bulbs that I don't grow and things I've grown from seed. And, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's Greg Boldiston on Facebook. And, yeah, have a look through all my, my photo albums because there's some interesting stuff there now, yeah. Wonderful. And you can be caught up to, with at... Uh, yeah, the- I, I do uh, Woodend, Castlemaine, Kyneton, Malden, Trentham and Lancefield Farmers Markets. And next week at the Glen Lyon Open Garden weekend. Excellent. Uh, and the plant fair coming the up. The plant ne- fair coming up. Too, yeah. Yep. We'll quickly tell listeners where the farm is, um, times of opening. Okay, yep. Um, sorry. We're, um, we're open um, Monday to Friday, uh, 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock, and Sundays, 10 o'clock to, Saturdays and Sundays, 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock um, at Menzies Creek. Um, you can't miss us. Menzies Creek's uh, one of those places you blink your eye and you miss as you go through. <laughs> so we're between Belgrave and Emerald, um, Melways 124E11, Hancock Daffodils, open until the end of September. Thank you. Fantastic. We have to fly. We've run out of time. But, of course, we'll be back at 7.30 next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.